Snap Studios. Okay, so in Southeast Asia, Westerners are always running around looking for the magic spot. The perfect place where you can live on the beach, get your chakras aligned, meet the person of your dreams, live off the fruit trees with the free massages and whatnot. And every few months, the supposed spot changes. First, it's somewhere outside of Chiang Mai. Then, OMG, you just gotta go to Ubud. It's different there, man. Different. Then two words. Gilly Islands. Whatever. I love travel. I do. But there's no such thing as Neverland. And that's what I'm telling this Australian woman I meet on the train to Bangkok. But she's going on about this new magic spot near Hat Yai on the southern border of Thailand. It's supposed to be brilliant, life-changing. Word. You should come with me. Right. But I do get off the train with her for the oldest of reasons. She's fine. And I know it's a mistake. It takes us almost two days to figure out how to get to this magic land. First a boat, then a van. And finally, late afternoon, on the back of two minibikes, we pull up cautiously to the place. It's weird. Like a big rainforest treehouse compound weird. Some of the structures are built on the ground. The rest, it's like they just decided to build around the trees and against them instead of chopping trees down. It's bizarre, beautiful. We go in, and a bunch of happy people sit at a long table finishing up dinner. Hello! They give us good things to eat and drink before showing us guest rooms. And my room is amazing. Somehow it feels both comfortable and part of the forest at the same time. Next morning for breakfast, I eat fruit I've never seen before. Monkeys snatch away morsels when I turn my head, drink a pinkish juice, and every place I turn my head, I see a beautiful painting or sculpture or cloth. The people radiate nice. They're laughing and painting and writing and cooking and yoging and repairing a structure, and they take us for hikes and swims. And in the afternoon, two half-naked women start playing on drums and other joins on a homemade lute before others start dancing. It's an artist colony. 20, 25 people, mostly Europeans. During the dark recession, someone had the idea of pooling their unemployment checks in a place with an extremely low cost of living. They wanted to test ideas about how structures should be part of the environment and instill community. And they came up with this. Brilliant, glorious, gorgeous. Days run together in a happy fog. Then they announce an emergency community meeting. Mandatory. And I'm waiting for it. The other shoe's gonna drop. Something's gotta be off. This must be when they force you to join the cult. People saunter into the communal space in various states of dress. A guy everyone calls the treasurer takes the floor. All right, then. I know it's a drastic step, but it's got to be done. From henceforth, we're switching over to Thai whiskey. There's nothing for it, in it? We're not made of cashew lushes. Local swill won't kill you. Well, that's it, then. 
And everyone laughs and goes back to the swimming cove. Awesome. Bliss. Which, being American, I can't abide for too long. So I start saying my goodbyes. And the Australian woman is like, where, where are you going? What are you doing? And I don't have a good answer for that. I just feel that people aren't supposed to be this happy. And I got to get out before it's too late. Today, from WNYC and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Shangri-La. Shangri-La. Amazing stories from real people searching for their own magic spot. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. Remember to always follow Australians wherever they are going because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now then, maybe your grandfather would tell you stories of growing up. And you'd say, Grandpa, that's not true. No way, Grandpa. Well, maybe you shouldn't have been such a skeptical kid. Andres Ruzo used to listen to his grandfather tell stories about growing up in Peru. I was about 12 years old, and my grandfather, who's this amazing storyteller, and I always love to hear his stories, told me about the legend of Baititi. Baititi means gold. The legend begins when the Spanish conquistadors came to Peru and pillaged all the gold they could find. Gold for the Inca, cori is the Quechua word, was considered you know, life. It wasn't. It was something sacred. It was not something monetary. It was a representation of life itself. So, what could they do? They wanted revenge. Out of vengeance, they tell the Spaniards, "Go into the Amazon. You'll find all the gold you want there. In fact, there's a city called Baititi, made entirely of gold, deep in the jungle." And the Spaniards go off. They're overjoyed. They want this gold. They want the glory. But the few that return come back with all these stories. They did not find a city of gold. They found giant snakes that could swallow men whole, according to these legends, right? They found spiders as big as their hands that, get, that ate birds, trees that blotted out the sun. Every kind of mosquito, biting fly, and anything that will leave you drained of blood powerful shamans with crazy spells that would drive men mad. And one of the details in this legend that I heard was of a river that boiled. And that is really where this entire story starts. Because in the funny way that we grow up to live the stories of our childhood, Andres grew up to become a geothermal engineer. His job is to find hot spots in the earth. Twelve years have passed from the moment when I heard, when I first heard the story of Baititi and the river that boiled. Working with colleagues at the equivalent of the Peruvian Geological Survey, imagine a stereotypical lab. There were maps, there were some dusty rocks around. 
one of my colleagues was there and he was like, hey, you know, we're going to be publishing this map, uh, geothermal features of hot springs, fumaroles, etc., from across Peru. And he called me over to his computer and he said, like, look, check it out. This is what it looks like. And there were a couple hot springs there. Some were really hot, but everything was, everything was small. And seeing a map awoke this memory, this dormant memory. And they said, whoa, wait a minute. Isn't there supposed to be like a boiling river or something? A, you know, a big river that boils, a big one. There's a legend, you know, come on, anybody? No, yes. I asked uh, other geologists, colleagues from government institutions, oil and gas companies, mining companies, academic institutions, and the answer was overwhelmingly no. It, it, it does. We've never heard of it. Legends regularly get exaggerated. One mining geologist specifically basically told me to stop asking stupid questions. His colleagues totally laughed at him and his Boiling River story. I'm at a family dinner... After shortly after that had happened, and my aunt tells me, you know, no, Andres, it exists. I've been there. You know, I've got this goal of identifying Peru's geothermal energy potential, which Peru, we desperately need green sources of energy. We desperately need it. What they were describing is huge. It perked my interest, if it was real. His aunt said the local name of the river translates to boiled with the heat of the sun. She said it was protected by a shaman in a remote Indian community called Montayaku. And she gave Andres the phone number for the shaman. I, I would spend the next six months trying to get a hold of them and uh, with no answer. <laughs> he took my aunt saying, look, Andres, I... I understand why they, they haven't gotten back to you. And, well, she helped me realize basically how naive I had been. I'm a geologist. Geologists have been at the forefront of, well, development, oil, gas, mining, you name it, and especially in the Amazon. So I, I totally understand how a young guy being like, hey, I'm a geologist. Let me in. I want to study this, please, <laughs> you know, um, might, might be an issue. So Andres decided to just go find the shaman himself. He got on a little plane with some bug spray, some GPS devices, a bunch of high-tech thermometers, and he arrived at Mayantuyaku and asked for the shaman. The head of Mayantuyaku is a sheripiari, or a, a healer, a curandero, a, sh- a shaman, named Maestro Juan, Maestro Juan Flores. I needed to get his permission to study the Boiling River. So Andres goes into the shaman's office. The shaman comes in. At first, he was just kind of watching and, and, and looking, and he had this serpentine gaze. You know how snakes, they, they don't blink, but you, and their eyes, their pupils aren't moving, but you know that they're watching you? It was, uh, that was the, the sort of feeling. It was very stoic, very... Every movement that I'm making is being watched. But, turned out... The shaman, Maestro Juan, was pretty friendly. He said something kind of surprising. He thought it might actually be a good idea for Andres to study the sacred river. Speaking, he was referring to himself. He's, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a healer of humanity. My, my job is to heal people, and you are a healer of the earth. So your mission is to heal it. 
And with that, you have my blessing to study, study our sacred river. Being given this permission for me it brought with it responsibilities. Andres was led through the forest to a river, a river that was really very warm. So he knew there was potential to find the boiling river from the legend. So Andres went back home, he talked to some colleagues, got some research funding to investigate the potential hotspot. He flew back with a team of eight people. They moved into some huts on the side of the river. They took measurements of the water, pushing through the thick jungle. I remember jokingly, even in my research team, I kept calling it the near-boiling river. <laughs> because even though they were like, yeah, yeah, the boiling river, it's like, uh, I mean, this thing's hot for sure, but you know, I don't see anything that it even looks like boiling, right? And then at one point he was faced with a problem that posed a serious threat to all of his work. So we had not only treated our clothing to prevent bug bites, we had not only sprayed down the mattresses where we were sleeping in the little huts, we, we really did everything. In fact, we were using jungle juice, which is like 99.8% DEET. It melted my pelican case. I'm not kidding about that. But amazingly, I was still getting bitten, and no one else in my group was. And we were sitting there like, Dude, what's the deal? Like, you know, your, your legs look like they have smallpox or something. It was morning. The shaman, Maestro Huang, was near the river, and he was preparing some of his plant medicines. He noticed my legs, and he was just like, I, th I thought this would happen. The jungle's trying to protect itself from you. So I, I expected this to happen, and it's because, it's because of what you know. And he, he started to explain how the spirits of the jungle see inside of us. They, they see the knowledge that we possess, is what he was telling me. And they, they saw what I was bringing into the jungle. And, he, I mean, he, energy and resources is basically what I focus on. And he explained how people with my skill set have come into that jungle before, and, and the jungle was hurt by it. The shaman invited Andres to participate in a ceremony to introduce him to the spirits of the jungle. Andres, is this kind of thing in line with your worldview, doing a ceremony to ingratiate yourself to the spirits of the jungle? That is, that is a great question. I don't know where my worldview sat. I definitely agreed to, you know, I'll do what I need to do to make it right. A part of me was also very curious. Something was going on, something that he recognized. It was night. They had said, you know, the shaman says that night is the best time to work because there are no distractions. The spiders in that area are, are all over the place. When light hits their eyes at night, they reflect like dew. So it looks like everything's just covered in dew drops. There are more stars than you can possibly think fit in the sky. And it's just, it's just gorgeous. I go into their large ceremonial maloca, their, their building, and they first presented Palo Santo which is a type of sandalwood, I think it's called in English. I was instructed to take the smoke from the burning wood and kind of do this, like, smoke bath on myself. And in the meantime, you know, the shaman was singing Icaros, these spells, these songs of the jungle. And it's, they were, they're just really haunting. Imagine, like, 
a song of praise, so like a church song, to keep it simple, mixing with, you know, a healing song. The thing that really led the ceremony was those was the songs, the ikaros. In the ceremony, the, the shaman will take a breath in, right, and they won't inhale for the most part, but they'll they'll breathe in the smoke and then suddenly just do this. And they'll they'll start blowing the smoke on you in a very ceremonial way. And then it, that cer- the ceremony ended with agua florida, um, flower water. So they, they take wild flowers and make make this perfume out of it. And it's just, it's, it's really a clean smell. It's a beautiful smell. He comes up and just does the... I left the ceremony, I went to bed, I woke up the next day, and I forgot to apply bug spray, and I had no new bites. What happened? Hopefully there is a, an organic chemist out there that, <laughs> that might be able to take me up on this, but um, as far as, as I know, I, I, I don't know what happened. We did the ceremony, and he's like, afterwards, he's like, hey, Andres, find me tomorrow. There's something I need to show you. And I'm, I'm like, what? I, hmm, I wonder what he needs to show me. The next day comes, and he leads me into the jungle with the apprenti- with one of his apprentices. And, and he's like, there's this place called La Bomba, which means the pump. And I was like, huh, the pump. That's peculiar. I'm in, I'm in my flip-flops, and... Honestly, my pajamas. Um, <laughs> so we start walking, and you know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, you know, I've, I've walked this path a million times. What have I missed something here? You know, like, and I absolutely had. The trail is thin, and it is on this steep slope, and it just looks like there's a wall of green on your right side. Then suddenly, my sort of just kind of stops, and he's like, "All right, this is it." So they take out their machetes and start opening up this old trail that had been totally overgrown and I followed them down and it was really amazing. The shaman personally lead me to this area that had become so overgrown that no one had likely been there for a very long time. The trails are so wound up in the roots of trees that you're basically just stepping on tree roots the entire way. Every kind of bug, snake, you know, tarantula, spider, frog, whatever. The scene was fantastic. Beautiful, clear, slightly turquoise water. It's flanked by, you know, small, very thin banks of ivory-colored stones. And then you've got these just walls of green on either side of you because you've got these big, beautiful trees and just vapor coming up and just floating like big clouds. And it just, even though there's not a rain cloud in the sky, it looks like rain is falling on this part of the river. But it's not raindrops. So it's actually bubbles coming up from below. Maybe the, the river was wider than a two-lane road. You've got these plumes of dense steam rising. It's like being in a sauna inside of a toaster oven. 
the, the steam coming up is hot, so every single one of your breaths, you feel it. As a scientist, we always try to steer clear of anything that might be sensationalist. And then suddenly I find this one spot where there's clearly a significant amount of very, very hot water coming in. I mean, it's over 200 degree water. I mean, you're getting third degree burns in less than half a second, easy. And every step is very, very intentional. Everything's painfully calculated. I've came across a dead possum that had not only boiled alive, but it's the bones were totally clean and the bones were like almost gelatinous. Honestly, I was exhilarated. <laughs> um, it was amazing. It just seems out of a dream sometimes, and that's, I'm being totally sincere about that. Finally, you know, the Boiling River had lived up to its name. If I were a scared conquistador and I saw this big mass of bubbling water, I mean, I'd know what I'd call that, <laughs> that's for sure. Andres took his findings, this real-life legend, and brought them back to his colleagues. When I got to take that information back to everyone, I mean... The answer that I've gotten from these people is one word. Wow. This is a real place. This is a spectacular place. So it had been at least six months since I'd been back at the Boiling River site. Everything was going great. The research was good. Everything had really been just this dream. And then suddenly I get this wake-up call. I called up Maestro, uh, the shaman at, uh, at Mayantuyaku, and on that call, he goes, oh yeah, by the way, Andres, there was a group of people that came here that, you know, they, they said they knew you, and, well, <laughs> that's, that's just when, you know, reality, boom, hits. Did it make me angry? Yes, it did. <laughs> I had not authorized this. This is no longer a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a dream world. This is real life. You know, this is not all fun and games. You know, you got you to gotta keep things close to the chest. I got at least seven requests from energy companies. And I mean, I, I, I've worked in energy. I've worked in resources. I know what questions you want to ask a, sci a scientist or one of the, the, the geologists in this case to get some information aimed at developing one of these sites. I'm not ignorant of that. An irresponsible geothermal development could easily run this river dry. So now, the race was on. Andres knew about the Boiling River, and so did an increasing number of geologists and developers. So Andres, together with the shaman, decided he wouldn't promote any more information about the river. He wouldn't publish anything, he wouldn't give any talks, until they could begin to get the place protected as a sacred site. And it was a process that would take years. You know, what had brought me to Peru in the first place was looking to produce green geothermal energy. And suddenly, suddenly I get to the boiling river and I'm staring at this place that could you know, really be a tremendous source of, of, of green energy. You know, it really could. But it's, I think it's so funny, and it's, it's the irony of the fact that by the time I leave my PhD, my mission will have been to stop any energy development, at least in the, boil, in the Boiling River area. 
I have a boss. I, in fact, I have numerous bosses <laughs> um, for work, for school, et cetera, et cetera. And there are expectations on, on the part of foundations that give you grants. He had found exactly what he set out to find. And it seemed like he could enjoy neither its riches nor its glory. It was a warm night. We were sitting on the terrace, the, the fenced off from mosquitoes by the mosquito netting. And, I, we, you know, I was sitting there with, with Maestro and Luis and some other people, and their custom there is to, to smoke mapachos, this potent Amazonian cigarette. And what's, I mean, it's a very musky smell. So anyway, so they had offered me a mapacho, and, you know, we're all sitting there just kind of just talking. And I finally asked him, you know, what about Baititi? What about the City of Gold? Does it exist? And, and it was so funny because he just looks at me. He gives me the weirdest look, and he just smiles, and he's got this great smile that just, like, snakes across his entire face. His eyes were just, like, lit up and sparkling because there's something that he knew. And all of this through the smoke of his mapacho cigarette. And then he goes, come on, you missed it? Really? Now then, Andres and the shamans of Mayantiaku are still working to keep the sacred waters protected. You can help them out. There's information on our website about their work in Andres' book, The Boiling River. It's at snapjudgment.org. The original sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto, and it was produced by Anna Sussman. When Snap Judgment returns, sometimes you got to get out before you can get back. When the Shangri-La episode continues, stay tuned. Snap Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O D. OO.com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Shangri-La episode. Today, we're searching for the perfect spot. Now imagine 1970s America 
world-famous writer Truman Capote wants to interview you on national television. Cool, right? Right? Watani Steiner tells us his story. Capote talks again with inmates inside San Quentin. Larry Steiner is a young prisoner transferred from Soledad to San Quentin on a um, conspiracy to murder charge for which he received a life sentence. I came to prison in 1969 or held in captivity in 1969. Why do you use the word captivity in particular? I said all blacks are political prisoners because America is a political prison. I said America is a prison. Something I said it sounded real slick. And he said, "Oh, you know, he, you know, he liked that, you know." So. <laughs> was that your way, kind of, to fight for freedom while you were? In- yeah, it was that, and it was to show people that no, I'm the revolutionary. As you can hear from the tape, this man Watani Steiner was in the Black Power movement in the '60s. He was actually part of a militant group called the Us Organization. And he resented prison, not just because it was prison, but because he says he didn't commit the crime he was locked up for. The murder of two Black Panthers who were killed during a shootout at a Black students' meeting at UCLA in 1969. Two people were killed, John Jerome Huggins and Al Prentice Bunty Carter, and I was wounded in the shoulder. Did you have a gun? Uh, no. At the particular time, I didn't have a gun. I didn't shoot anyone. I had no weapon to shoot anyone. Do you feel like you were targeted because they wanted to get you off the streets and out of the revolution? I think this is what they wanted to do. And I was convicted of second-degree murder and conspiracy. He was also leaving behind two young sons. He last saw them in an L.A. County courtroom as he was being dragged away in shackles. One was three and one, the other one was two. They said, Baba, you know, they called me Baba, and they gave me the, the Black Power salute. And that was, uh, you know, that was heartbreaking as well. I said, okay, this is, you know, this is a sacrifice I'm making for them. What is your own attitude towards your being here at San Quentin? You resent every minute of it. Of course I do. I, I believe that a, a fool would just have to really enjoy living in a place that like the penitentiary, any type of penitentiary. And uh, you asked me a kind of a silly question, asking me, do I resent being here? Of course I resent being here. No, I, it was a silly question. I take it back. Well, what I really meant was, do you find that, they, that you gain nothing for a value by being here? Did you? Well, actually, there's no appreciable difference between me by the time I came in than me now, except I've become more hip and more wise to the white man's game. So how did you decide to escape? Like, how did you make that decision? After the Truman Capote interview, that's the first time that I was approached by a guard, and he came and told me it's a black officer. So he came with me and told me, you stupid youngster, you know. I said, what, what? You know, he's telling me, you, you know, you're not going to get out of here alive, you know. I'm kind of scared, but I don't want to show him that I'm scared. But in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, wow, you know, if he's that concerned, this has got to be serious stuff. And it was. Someone tried to stab Steiner on the yard. 
And then that same guard went a step further and agreed to help him escape. One night, Steiner and his brother got a pass to stay with their parents in one of the family visiting houses. It was in a lower security area that was between the prison's high walls and the outer fence. After their parents went to sleep, the brothers piled up sheets and pillows under the blankets. Just making the dummies and stuff and writing the notes, because I remember I was writing a note and my hand was, was kind of shaking. What did the note say? It said that, you know, sorry you had to do this, Mom, but uh, we, had, uh, we had no choice. Then they quietly slipped out the back door. As they scrambled up the hill past the warden's house and the guard's quarters, Steiner could hear dogs barking in the distance. The brothers knew the guard's patrol schedule, and timing was everything. They ran silent and breathless through the shadows over the fences. As they cleared the last hurdle, a low fence, a car pulled up and flashed its lights. My brother got in the front seat, down, I got on the back seat. That sense of relief of finally making it out of here, that was a tremendous feeling. That was a feeling that we we committed, we did a revolutionary act. We escaped from San Quentin. But then the next fear would only be, man, we can't make no mistake. He was out of prison, but now he needed to get out of the country. He was leaving behind these two young sons who he barely knew, hoping one day he'd see them again. He hopped on a plane to South America. And as Steiner's plane touched down, out the window he saw this wide, slow river and thick tropical vegetation. I looked at my brother, he looked at me, and all I said, get me now. We knew we were far away from that. Eventually, the brothers split up, and Steiner made his way to Suriname, a tiny country in South America. What did you know about Suriname before you got there? Only thing I knew about Suriname was that, you know, they spoke Dutch. Uh, Suriname was the last place that I thought that I would end up in. Strangely enough, the day he got there, he walked right into the middle of a military coup. I saw people cheering in the streets. They had signs. Most of the signs in uh, certain Tongo, Opal Kondriman, you know, up country man. And I'm looking at the soldiers, and I see these some young boys, 19, 20 years old. They got rifles in their hand. They got dreadlocks. This is what I was looking for. All the whole time we were fighting and talking about what we're going to do, Suriname is the place. And just you can see the enthusiasm on the women's faces that was just so pleased, and they patting them on the shoulders, and they jumping up and down. I thought Suriname would be my, my home, uh, particularly in the beginning. When he met a beautiful local woman, he fell in love. She taught him to speak Dutch, and they started a new family. Did that change your life, your eldest daughter being born? Yeah, my, 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 she was born in the house. The first one, Eskishana, she was precious. I mean, I mean, she was just, just this bundle of joy for me. After Kishana came Latanya, Latisha, Tamani, Laj, and Mtume. And Mtume is, is, the, is the baby. 
I loved them so, 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 so much, you know, and I used to have an army with me when I used to travel through the streets. I just shift my focus, my focus not on the big revolution that's way out there and overthrowing the government and stuff. It was on my, 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 my family. One of their favorite things to do was go for long walks in the jungle, the bush. Deep in the interior, they got, you know, big, big old tall trees, you know, may see a snake or something here and there, something running. Uh, but it's, it's the sound of the bush that really draws you in. You hear the little crackling uh, noises, you hear things dropping from the trees, you know, and then just being with them. As peaceful as it was in the jungle, in the capital, politically, things were starting to get tense. Uh, the regime, you know, I, I knew it was corrupt, you know, and I see them winning elections and don't want to give up the power and then rig the election. I see coming up with uh, referendums, making themselves president for life. I mean, there's some crazy stuff taking place. Then, one day, soldiers showed up at his house with guns. They came in there, kicked down the door, pulled the gun on my my, my, my little girls and, and babies and said, we got to come out this house or they're going to start shooting. The soldiers were taking over his property. They wanted it for a military post. And because they had absolute power, Steiner couldn't stop them. The soldiers grabbed his family's belongings and started throwing them out the window. Steiner picked up what he could carry. Within a few minutes, he and all of his kids were on the side of the road, with the baby Mtume crying in his wife's arms. The only thing I can think is getting a gun. I, you know, it, I, suicide mission it probably was because I did. You know, my wife convinced me that that was a stupid thing to think. But because my children's on the streets, my wife looking at me like, you know, I was just punked. <laughs> you know, it just got punked out of the house. I can't do anything. I have no clue of what, you know, what I'm gonna do. They ended up living in a single-room concrete house in the jungle with no electricity or running water. The government soldiers were supposed to bring water, but some weeks they wouldn't come at all. And, you know, me, weak as my, you know, for my children, when they say, Papa, you know, so when they say they want water, I got to give them water. Even in, in the States, when you had to drink from a different water fountain, at least you had the water. That was, that was sort of the breaking point, I think, for me, because uh, I had nothing else. This idea that was born the moment the soldiers kicked in the door of his house started to get bigger and bigger until it wouldn't leave him alone. The most difficult thing was trying to frame it in a way where my wife would understand. And so we're sitting by the river. You know, first I tried to make, I said, this situation is getting bad. I said, you know, I talked about the kids a lot. Uh, then I told her, you know, I'm thinking about maybe I should go back. Back to the United States. Back to prison in the United States. She was totally opposed to that. You know, I used to tell, you know, some gruesome stories. So now I'm talking about going back and going to prison. That's going to be hard to swallow. It's hard to me to swallow. Steiner thought maybe he could cut a deal with the State Department, get his family to America, and in return, he would give up his freedom. But I framed it like, look, I'm going back to the, to the States, and the most they can give me 
because I already did five years. It's two, three years, but you all will all be in there. You'll be taken care of. you get medical care. They'll be able to go to school. And then when I come out, we'll be one big happy family. Steiner's wife came around. Suriname was now in the middle of a full-blown civil war, and if there was a chance to get out, they had to try. Steiner walked out of the jungle and into the capital. On the embassy steps, he stalled. After all these years of going through revolutionary struggle, country to country, and then all of a sudden at this end now, I decided to throw my hands up and say, all right, you win. I lose. Take me back to prison and I'll be a good boy. That's not how I I viewed it at that time. I framed it as a, a necessary sacrifice. When Snap Judgment returns, the startling conclusion. The Shangri-La episode continues in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Shangri-La episode. Today, we're searching for that space we'll never find. And when last we left our hero, Batani Steiner, he was just about to turn himself into authorities. Snap Judgment. He walked inside the American embassy. Yeah, I went to the window. I told him, my name is Larry Steiner. I think there's a warrant for my arrest and I want to talk with someone about uh, surrendering. She looked up, you know, and she said, oh, one moment. My mind was telling me to break and run. When they reacted the way they did, that just totally just blew my mind, you know, because they didn't arrest me. They were kind. After 20 years on the run and a few weeks of negotiations, Steiner had his deal, signed papers and all. Once he surrendered, the State Department would send his family to America. The sooner he said goodbye, the sooner he'd see them again. I had uh, Natisha. Natisha, that's my uh, daughter. She uh, grabbed a hold of my leg and, you know, was holding. And i I never forget what she was telling me. She was saying, Papa, Papa, don't do the way. That just broke my heart. I mean, that, 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 you know, it echoed so much that, uh, you know, I almost brought tears to my eyes because I knew I was leaving, and I still had in the back of my mind, I don't know how long this is going to be. Steiner was on a flight back to America, courtesy of the State Department. But here's the thing. When you escape from prison and are captured, you're sent back to the same prison you escaped from. So that meant Steiner wasn't just going into custody. He was going back to San Quentin. You know, that feeling I had when I said, get me now, I had, you got me now, you know, because it it has a door. The door has a a funny slam, slam to it in San Quentin. When you you get in there and that door closed, it makes a noise that you can never forget. With that sound itself, it made, it brought prison to life. It's no getting away this time. They put the handcuff over me and escorted me straight to the solitary confinement. 
there. I mean, I'm in that little small cell, confined, can't go anywhere. Starting to feel like the walls is closing on me, you know, and I'm locked down, you know, hours a day. He was just waiting to hear that his family had arrived safely. One evening after dinner, a guard called him to the front of his cell to sign for a letter. He passed Steiner an envelope with the State Department seal on it. Steiner ripped it open. I received a letter from the State Department saying, well, uh, we, we forgot. It's almost like we forgot. You're going to be in prison and you won't be able to take care of your family. Therefore, you know, you know, the, the agreement thing is just over. He read it again and again until it sunk in. He could not provide financial support from prison, so he was not a valid sponsor for his family. His wife and kids weren't coming to the United States. They weren't going anywhere. First thing I said, damn, what the, I said, I knew it, I knew it. I mean, I was just, I was just, I don't know, I was, I, I just paced, I started pacing the floor because I said, oh, they didn't cross me. And I was kicking myself because I, I think I should have known better. And uh, all I got is nothing there but my thoughts and this letter. Yeah, I felt at that moment that I failed my family, you know, I, you know, that I promised them so much. Nothing turned out the way he planned it. At his first parole board hearing, the people who could set him free called him a terrorist. They said, you're going to be in here a long time. Steiner was in hell, but back in Suriname, so was his family. His wife had a nervous breakdown. His children were separated. That just broke my heart in pieces. I mean, it just ripped it apart. Those were the lowest point in my incarceration, was just thinking about what their thoughts are, you know, how they feel about me leaving and and this whole sense of abandonment. And uh, they probably hate me, you know, what they're going to be when they grow up. I can't do anything, you know, so... After 12 years, finally, the kids did get to come to the States, and they were taken in by Steiner's eldest son, the one he'd left some 30 years earlier in an L.A. courtroom. He captured all of that, that, uh, that love and understanding and trauma and all the other stuff that he had to go through, and he came out, uh, you know, my hero. So, yeah. What happened with your wife after you left? Well, well, she was supposed to come as well, but the kids came first, and she was in the process. Well, she eventually she died, and that was a big, big, big blow for her. So I, I always say that she surrendered just like I surrendered. And all this time, Steiner was still in San Quentin. The kids visited a couple times. They sent photos of high school proms and then college graduations. But still, Steiner didn't know if he'd ever get out. I've been denied so many times from the board. I pretty much figured that, you know, they were just trying to wait till I died. Then, in January 2015, after 21 years in prison, Steiner went to his 14th parole board hearing. As the interview came to a close, Steiner knew he'd be denied just like all the other times. They summed up, well, Mr. Steiner, we've been listening to you, and uh, well, we realized that the only reason why you came back to prison is because of your family. 
You didn't come back to face justice. She said, however, considering your age and the amount of time you've been here, we will find you, we find you suitable. So she said, suitable. You know, I, I didn't jump for joy, I didn't do anything. I just didn't have no expression on my face, but I heard it. We're outside Steiner's transitional housing in East Oakland, and there's this young guy leaning against his car who looks something like Watani Steiner. Are you Watani's son? Oh, yeah. Hi. I was just calling him. Oh, I'll call him. All right. Hey. It's M. Tume, the baby, the one who was just a year and a half when Steiner left Suriname and turned himself in. (laughs) How are you feeling? I'm good. I'm kind of excited. Yeah. I mean, it's like the first time ever, so (laughs) I was driving over just thinking about it. This is the first time he's seen his father as a free man. I was about to say, there you go, but I'm like, nah, that's not him. Steiner comes walking toward us. He's wearing his fedora as always, cane clicking against the pavement. (laughs) They give each other this big hug. (laughs) <laughs> and Steiner leans back and puts his hand on his son's shoulder. Two inches on me. Let's see what your jab look like. Oh, it's pretty good. They go back in for another hug and just hold each other. Man, 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 man. Wow. This man is getting big. Oh, yeah, nah. You know, I'm not two no more. Wow, you went up one and a half years old. Look how big you got. You got hair on your face. <laughs> <laughs> a little more than you. Oh, man. oh man, 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 wow. Thank you, Watani Steiner. Now, if you're wondering, what happened to Watani Steiner's brother... 40 years after breaking out of San Quentin, he's still on the run. Maybe he found his own Shangri-La. The sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Suki Lewis and Mark Ristich. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could spend your whole life trying to discover a boiling river, find it, then decide you can't even tell anybody and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is... W-N-Y-C.